We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. You think football is still fun? Uh, yes. Sir. Yes, no. No? Sir, sir uh, it was fun. Not anymore, though, is it? Is it? No, not by No, it's not fun anymore. Not even a little bit. Just look at that. He hit the fall. That gets a free stay. <laughs> you having fun yet? Oh, yeah. I'm having a blast. Thanks. Good. All right. Welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the podcast where all movies are sports movies, brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode, it is a sports movie with almost zero sports, about 30 seconds of actual sports action. We are talking High Flying Bird, Steven Soderbergh's look at labor and player empowerment and pro basketball. Alex Baisley and Bobby Wagner from Tipping Pitches return to the show. I couldn't think of two better guys who did the talk out this movie and its approach than these two. As always, go check out Tipping Pitches, a must for any baseball fan or just a fan of, of unionized labor. Uh, you'll see when you hear them talk about the show, you will see why they were the perfect guests for this episode. Uh, as always, want to shout out our Patreon group for supporting the show, especially our big chill producer level patrons. That is Aaron Figueroa, Mike Schubert, Steve Rogers, Kevin Frost, Mike D, Ryan Yeager, Mike Dries, James Kowalewski, Chris Mikoski, Andrew Teagle, John Craig, Sam Smith, Zach Rich, Jason Alba, and Classic Stadium Fire. Big thanks to them and all of our patrons for supporting the show. If you go to patreon.com slash big screen sports, you can vote on movies for this show to cover. There are three polls up right now for movies in October. Patrons getting three chances to pick what this show is going to cover in October, running the almost, almost the entire slate. So go tune in for that. Uh, you get schedule updates, you get ad-free episodes, uh, you get merch all while supporting the show. And if you want to support the show for free, just tell a friend. Tell a friend who likes movies, sports movies, anything in between. Uh, so with that, let's talk High Flying Bird with Bobby and Alex. What you saw yesterday was just the beginning oh, man, this is getting crazy. of what could be a whole new industry. He's up to something. You did all that? You know the league with a black ball. You scared? We don't need the league. We are disruptors. It's your game now. You were born for way more than this. Don't let them fool you. All right, returning to the show, the co-host of just the, the best baseball podcast in the land and the perfect podcast for this movie that we're going to talk about. It is Alex Baisley and Bobby Wagner from Tipping Pitches. Guys, welcome back to Big Screen Sports. Kyle, what's up? What's up? I love that we're asked back to talk 
about High Flying Bird. You really know the product. You know the brand. Right. You Kyle. picked a you picked a non sports podcast to come and talk about a non sports movie. This is great. exactly exactly. And I mean, and this is like the the evolution of the last money we talked about, uh, the last movie we talked about being Moneyball. Right. Um, it's just like the the next level of that. Before we we dive in, guys, tipping pitches. Tell the folks who might not be familiar what is tipping pitches. Tipping pitches is a baseball and labor and pop culture podcast. We talk about anything that excites us, but labor and, you know, the stars that we love in the game are the things that excite us most. So those are the things that we talk about most frequently, not really the scores on a day-to-day basis necessarily, but, you know, we cover everything from minor league unionization to the CBA fight to the players that we love the most to Taylor Swift's new album. It's really anything that, that drives our passion. Yeah. And you guys have, have a great Patreon, uh, that the people can join great, great Slack community. If any of that interested you great Patreon with the Slack community, where you can also, you mentioned Taylor's new album. You can also talk about Carly Rae Jepsen's new album, because that, that's something that I got to do a, a little discussion about a couple weeks ago. Um, but yeah, everyone go check out you guys at tipping pitches. It lines up perfectly with what what we're talking about because today we are talking about High Flying Bird, the 2019 basketball drama. It starred Andre Holland, Zazzy Beats, and Melvin Gregg. During a pro basketball lockout, a sports agent pitches a rookie basketball client on an intriguing and controversial business proposition. It was directed by the great Steven Soderbergh, written by celebrated playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney. It had a $2 million budget. It was released on exclusively for Netflix. It was shot on an iPhone, and it has a huge Rotten Tomatoes disparity, which I, th- I thought was really interesting looking at it. This has a, a 91% critic score, and like Rotten Tomatoes isn't the end-all be-all, but you know, quote-unquote certified fresh. 50% audience score. Extreme Brian Windhorse voice. Now, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, why is that? That's because it's no longer the age of the critic, man. You know what? Critics are out. The popular opinion is in. This is, you know, we're done with the Electoral College. It's about the popular vote on this one. Uh, And the popular vote hated it. I don't know. I don't know. Like, absolutely hated it. It's intriguing to me that 50% of people liked it, though, because you might think that 50% of viewers would be amenable to the ideas of this film, that players should have more rights. You know, we're a very divided country these days, Kyle. No, I think, honestly, I think the thing that's driving the, the discrepancy is that it's uncomfortable to watch in comparison to other sports movies. As Alex joked in the intro, it's not really a sports movie. There's not a lot of sports depicted. It's a finance movie. It's a business movie. It's a, it's like an intellectual property movie. Yeah, it's a in politics a movie, honestly. Yeah. Right. And even down to the way that it's shot, which I assume that we will talk in great detail about being shot on the iPhone 8, but it's very, it's either bird's eye or it's low angle. And so I think that it makes viewers slightly uncomfortable. So if you just fired this up on Netflix and you watched 45 minutes of it and you turned it off, Nothing probably stuck with you. You probably didn't like it. But if you're a critic who understands Soderbergh's, you know, his his entire canon, his entire body of work, then you're intrigued by what he's trying to disrupt by making this movie, how he's trying to unpack the sports movie and flip it on its head in a way. And so you might 91% of you might like it more so than if you're just a casual viewer who thought that this was going to be, you know, the, the next Hoosiers or whatever. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting because very little actually happens in it. And I'm sure we will get to that. Right. And the nature of kind of how related to sports 
it actually is, but so much of it is kind of reading into the subtext of this kind of larger ecosystem that they're playing within, right? It it obviously it takes place kind of amid a a lockout in the early 2010s, um, and it's just agent kind of wheeling and dealing, and even his grand scheme doesn't come to pass in the end uh, necessarily. Which which again, I know that we're going to get into, but I can I can see why some people who just wanted the 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 big t- touchdown throw or the the three pointer buzzer beater like they're not going to get that you're not going to get that out of this movie well and if you go into it expecting even because we're kind of want to talk about too how this is the the next evolution in sports movies the behind the scenes stuff kind of what started really Moneyball and early look at that but I think if you look at you know the last ten to fifteen years of sports movies. Aside from, I would say, combat sports like Warrior and Creed, there is less rah, 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 we've got to win the championship versus what's going on behind the scenes, stuff like stuff like um, obviously Moneyball, um, the Phenom, which I don't know if you guys saw, where it is more about the, the mental side of baseball and Ethan Hawke just being an absolute psycho, like that, that sort of thing. This, even those movies have their cinematic sports movie moments. This is, it, I mean, it's... I wasn't surprised to see that it was written by a playwright. This is a play. This is a conversational movie. This is very much, this is two to three people in a room, back and forth, sharp dialogue. It doesn't feel like your your classic, typical sports movie. But if you went into it, even expecting that, it's probably naturally just, just going to be a letdown. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's no secret why Soderbergh was attracted to it, why this was the sports movie that he decided to to jump into. Because it's like, it's it's thought provoking and it's not trying to give you the answer. That's one of the things that I was really struck by on the rewatch when I watched it for appearing on this podcast was like when I watched it the first time, I was like, OK, I want you to think critically about like the athlete owner relationship, the idea of controlling your own image and all these things. And I thought that it had much more of a like a strong opinion about that. And then when I watched it this time, I was kind of like, I don't really think it's taking a side as much as I watch when I as when I watched it the first time. It's kind of just like having a conversation. It's it's kind of just like throwing a bunch of things out there at the viewer. And again, not to not to dwell too much on the audience score necessarily, but not a lot of viewers like to be poked and prodded in that way. And this movie pokes and prods quite quite a bit. Definitely. Alex, is this a Hall of Fame all-star starter or bench warmer sports movie for you? Oh, wow. Right out the gate. Hard right out hitting the gate. questions. Right out the gate. Honestly, I really kind of went back and forth with with this one. Um because I feel like, you know, when you think like, a, what's, what's a Hall of Fame movie in your mind? It's something that stands the test of time. It's something that really kind of makes you stop in your tracks, right? And this is such a, while its ideas are grand, the movie itself is a really small movie, right? It takes place in a handful of kind of different rooms, like you were saying, Kyle, between a couple characters at a time. And, and you know, I was like, is it really going to, going to reach that that bar right of standing in our minds for for decades or whatever but i think in terms of the the both the quality of it the the screenwriting of it and also just kind of the the moment in time that it came during right being shot on an iphone which can can be kitschy and i think he does it exceptionally well here um it's released on netflix right the the themes in the movie kind of intersect with Soderbergh's career himself, right? And I think 
for that reason, it's a Hall of Fame movie in my book. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's I was right. wondering if someone was going to make that jump tonight. Yeah. So I, I actually don't think it's a Hall of Fame movie personally. I like it a lot. I liked it less when I watched it this time around. I think it's like teetering back and forth between All-Star and Starter. I would put it in All-Star because I do think that it's asking questions that not a lot of other sports movies are willing to ask. And I like that in a movie. I was bothered a little bit more by the iPhone 8, like low, aggressively low angle fisheye shots sometimes than I was expecting to be, which is like, I, I get why he was doing it. And also like the fact that he made this movie for $2 million in New York City is like pretty insane. Um, and it's it's actually... It's really funny, too, which I think is elevates it and is an underrated part of this movie because so many of his movies are so serious um, and about serious concepts as this one is, too. So I, I think I'll go with All Star out of respect for my man, Steven Soderbergh. You could make 100 Gray Mans for the price of one high flying <laughs> for 100 high flying birds for the price of one Gray Man. I'd take a hundred high flying birds. I'd take 10 high flying birds yeah. instead of one Gray Man. That's what seeing that this was. $2 million. And obviously it wasn't released in theaters, but even like you take a concept like this or something, like if we could have five $30 million movies that, that hit theater like this, I don't know if it would have done well. I, I'm not like the barometer of what's going to do well in theaters or not, but like, I just, I think we, I think we had this conversation a little bit with Moneyball, but it's like, why can't we get more just like, 30 to $50 million sports movies and put them out in theaters and like it be a great thing, great fun thing to go watch. Yeah. And, and so we talk about this a lot, like in the greater film criticism world, we talk about like movies that have ideas, you know, like there are some movies that are just like really simple elevator pitch pulls you right in. You're pulled in by the action. You're pulled in by the set. You're pulled in by the, you know, if it's traveling abroad, something like that. But then there are these movies, these other movies that have like, highfalutin ideas about society and they, and they make you think and this is one of this is one of those movies and this is i think why it is at least an all-star in my book instead of being a starter because you know not a lot of people can pull that off without making it seem uh unreal or like sort of uncanny or manufactured for the purposes of the movie this feels like it actually could have really happened or yeah. like maybe did happen you know mm -hmm. yeah this one I settled on All-Star 2. Like, it's ambitious in terms of the idea. Like, it's not a formulaic sports movie, and it's it's very unique in its own right. And maybe in 20 years, there will have been multiple movies about labor in sports, and, like, maybe this will be seen as kind of an early starter, but get dwarfed. That's when something. Tipping Pitches Media takes off, bro. Exactly. All the movies about labor and sports. <laughs> exactly. The, about the, the, the minor league uh, union fight. Um, I think this movie gets the idea of labor and self and people better than it gets the idea of basketball. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. sure it has the greatest grasp on the realities of basketball. I, I just, I have a, I have a lot of questions about Eric Scott in general. Me too. Um, that, that <laughs> we're going to get to, but it's a strong all-star just because of it's a, just a really ambitious, I guess like, I, it's not like a fun watch. It's not like it's not like you would say like when Soderbergh did Logan Lucky. That's a fun watch, but this is just a very like yeah. unique experience. Yeah. Well, and it in a way it does kind of mirror some of the energy that he has brought to the sort of heist type films that he has done before, right? Because you are you know you're following the character um, of of Ray played by Andre Holland 
who is this this you know basketball agent trying to fight for his uh, one star player and a, and ostensibly the rest of the league in this in this lockout right but like you're you're kind of watching this sort of quote unquote heist unfold in front of you right you have the kind of quote unquote brains of the operation you're seeing the the wheels turning at every moment you kind of are under the assumption that Holland's character is one step ahead of you at all times, which he kind of is. And that was one of the things that I kind of struggled with in the movie as well, right? Is kind of how much is sort of left unsaid and how much yes. takes place off screen. It's a it's a tight 90 minutes. And you rarely will you hear me saying that that movie could have been a little bit longer, but there could have been more more in there. There could have been a little bit more more exposition. For I sure. feel the exact same way. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I often complain when there's a long movie cuz like if you have to rewatch one movie a week for a podcast it's sometimes <laughs> nice when you can you can get it in pretty quickly but uh sure. th- this is one that there was definitely some stuff on the floor but again like there's not a lot of IMDb trivia on this one really the only bit is that filming took 3 weeks and Soderbergh finished the rough cut of the film 3 hours after principal photography wrapped which is Bro. Ridiculous. Steve has that dog in him. (laughs) (laughs) The dude makes movies. He's not here to pump up, pump pump himself up. He's not here to to necessarily, you know, write his own auteur myth. He's here to make movies for the fucking people. And that's what I love about him. He's like here to do this quickly so he has enough time to do a cut of Raiders of the Lost Ark (laughs) with the score from the social network. Like the man. I I mean, I guess hat tip to the big picture, Bobby. They talk about yeah. Steven Soderbergh. Like, he does that running diary of all the things he watches and does throughout the year. And I'm like, yeah. and when I hear that, I'm like, how does this man have that much time? And it's because he gets shit done fast. Yeah, no, it's because he, he makes his movies so fast. He does all of his work for the year in two months. And then the rest of the 10 months of the year, he's just fucking watching content like the rest of us. So Honestly, listening Labor to pods. King. Like, Labor Goated. King. He- <laughs> Well, it is the movie kind of does act as a sort of interesting allegory to the position he's in, right? You mentioned Moneyball, and he he famously was removed from the Moneyball project ten years prior, more or less, to this yeah. movie coming out, right? This this big kind of massive budget movie with um, these these A list actors. He gets removed from it. He he steps away from filmmaking, and. 10 years later, obviously a couple projects under his belt, he comes out with this thing that sort of flips the the entire notion of the movie on its head. It's not about sports. It's not shot with a with a beautiful $10,000 camera. He did throw it together after a couple drinks on a Wednesday night. You know, like <laughs> he's doing it because because he's like I've I've got the skills. I'm the one who has all the goods here and I can actually put something together and put it out and people are going to watch it because they're coming to see me and they're not coming to see Miramax. I don't know. That was, was that a movie studio? <laughs> I, think, I think that cratered. <laughs> like a, <laughs> well, there you go. No one was coming to see it. I am sort of obsessed with the idea of reading this movie through the lens of Steven Soderbergh, not getting to direct Moneyball. Like it yeah. makes it all that much more interesting. And now not everybody going into this movie knows that that IMDb trivia fact, not everybody cares really people just like watching Moneyball because of because brad pitt is good to look at and jonah hill is funny not be romantic about baseball exactly right (laughs) but you know to put this through a labor lens as we as we love to do on tipping pitches Moneyball is about how much you could take money from the players 
And High Flying Bird is about how you can take that money back if you are the players, how you can own your own rights, how you can determine your own destiny as opposed to this this GM in Brad Pitt's character and Moneyball Billy Bean moving players around on a chessboard like it's a fantasy game. And and High Flying Bird, I do, I do think one of the things that's successful about it is that it adds that humanity back into it for all the flaws in believing that Eric Scott is going to be the first pick along with another rookie first round pick who's also playing the same position as him. But we could maybe talk, maybe they're actually the Timberwolves and they drafted three point guards and none of them are Steph Curry. But, you know, for all that it gets wrong about basketball, I do think it does get like the athletes, you know, conundrum. Correct. I mean, we can roll that into what worked in that this is the first I, I, I'm not going to say like off the bat, like this is the first, the only pro labor sports movie because there there might be one that like I'm missing. But like you mentioned, like Moneyball wasn't the first one to treat the players like chess pieces. This movie is essentially the opposite of the replacements, which I will say is a mm-hmm. movie that I love dearly. Like it, if it's on TNT, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm all in. But that movie is essentially we're celebrating scab players there's a line where Gene Hackman says that the players ran off to their mansions. Like it is the, it is the least pro labor force movie ever. He says it to a man who owns a football team. Like it is just like irony is dead in the replacements, but Keanu forever. This movie it's pro player. It's very pro black athlete. It's just, it's building on what's been happening. Like it, it has its finger on the pulse of what's been happening in the decade. Like this it it would have been interesting if this movie would have been more than just a, a $2 million shot in three weeks Netflix release. If they would have like, if he would have put some oomph behind it, like if this, this had some budget behind it, um, got a little more right about basketball and just been a little bigger. It would have been interesting. I, I think there would have been a lot more like think pieces and conversations from stemming from this movie. Cause I went back and looked, there wasn't really a ton. There was a kind of a mm-hmm. vulture deep dive on the making of it couple reviews there wasn't it kind of it kind of went and and went and passed like same with um when he did the laundromat like which i think came out like right after that like that one kind of blipped and that was it that movie's sick another example (laughs) of steve just fucking putting in work that dude is awesome (laughs) he's just like i just have some thoughts about something that's happening globally i'm just gonna make a whole feature film about it in the span of eight weeks you and me me both steve What the world needs now is a movie on the Panama Papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I agree with you that this did not make that much noise when it came out. Um, but it felt really loud to me because it was like dead targeted at the ringer. You know, like it's Soderbergh. It's about basketball. It's about thinking critically about basketball. And it's a it's a movie that has ideas like I joked about earlier. Um and so it felt really important to like me and all of my coworkers and then doesn't really have that big of a legacy. You know, when you asked us to talk about this, I was obviously excited, but I hadn't really thought much about it since I watched the first time and, and sort of like consumed podcast conversations about it. Um, I mean, I, I think what worked is what we've talked about already in that it's asking questions that other movies are not willing to ask. And it's asking them in an interesting way. And that idea that it's a, it's more of a play than it is a film is an interesting one because it's so heliocentric around the Andre Holland character. And he's giving a really, I think a really good performance if sort of an 
unrealistic performance. Like nobody talks that way necessarily, but it didn't bother me. And he's, I, what I liked so much about it on this rewatch was beyond the sports, beyond the implications of sports and labor and controlling your own image and what that means for a, a group of young black athletes to be making all of these, you know, private jet flying owners very wealthy. I think that it's like a power broker movie as well. And the Andre Holland character being a sort of like New York City hustler going from building to building to building and maybe not being shown the respect that he deserves and having the humility to like take some of that and know that his plan is going to unfold anyway, I thought was really cool. Almost like billions in a way, but without all of the like bad chalky writing that happens in billions, you know? Um, And so I think, I think that that character worked very, very well. It definitely felt a little bit like like jazz to me, almost, where there are a lot of moving pieces and everything's a little bit off time. And I certainly have no idea where things are going next, but I love what I'm hearing right now, right? And as you said, like Holland is that kind of, he's the force at the center of the movie that keeps you grounded a little bit because there are so many different characters kind of going off in every direction. If he's not there and giving that performance that kind of gives you the confidence to say like, Oh, he, he knows what he's doing. I think if, if he's not giving that performance, if his character isn't there, the movie doesn't, doesn't work. Otherwise it's just kind of haphazard and things are all over the place. And you're like, what is, what is he really trying to get across here? Yeah, there there are movies like sports movies and movies in general that that will share the ball among a lot of characters. And like a lot of Soderbergh movies do that. I mean, notably, he has a movie about a, a big cast of characters doing doing a lot of good things. This one, like for sports movie analogy, puts the ball in one guy's hands. Like if, mm-hmm. if Holland wasn't capable and up to this role, the movie would have sunk and it would have sunk mm-hmm. really, really fast. Um, he is he's probably one more decent sports movie away from having a legitimate shot at the, uh, the sports movie hall of fame. I don't know. Have you guys seen sugar? I think we've talked about this. Have you, have you guys seen sugar? I've never seen it. Unfortunately, sugar is he's, he's a, he's a supporting character in sugar. Sugar is, has a claim to the best baseball movie the last 15 years. I don't even know if it's been 15 years now. It might be longer. I don't know, but sugar is all time great. And it's, it's, and it's kind of a movie like this. It asks a lot of important questions that we're not asking about athletes, except it's baseball. It's a, it's an immigrant story as much yeah. as it is a, um, you know, a baseball movie. And the, you know, this one asking the same thing, like, um, it's it's kind of just echoing what you guys have said, like the, the ideas and the questions that this movie are asking are a lot more important and a lot more poignant than if the, it got the basketball right. Um, you know, sometimes I'll come on this pod and I'll like kill a movie for just getting stuff about the sports wrong. And I think it says a lot about how effective this movie was at getting its messaging across, or at least asking these questions that I didn't, I didn't really mind that the basketball was, that there was some kind of stuff that made me shrug. And I, I think that's, I think that's a sign that a movie worked in total is that if you can get over the the sports of the that goes wrong Bobby you mentioned that you you didn't you weren't as into it on on rewatch we talk about movies having the second life it used to be the second life on DVD or on cable and now it's if a movie gets a, like a Netflix run and people start watching it that's when it the conversations reopen this one has been on Netflix um mm-hmm. is 
is this movie actually rewatchable? Um, I think it was worth revisiting after a few years. I don't know that I'm like itching to watch it again, like I like I would with Moneyball. It's not comfort food. Like no. it's more of a thought exercise. So if you're in the mood for that, or if you're the type of person who craves that, then I think it is. But to most people, I would I'd probably say no. It's not that. It's not very rewatchable. And honestly, like the cinematography makes it a little bit less rewatchable to me. Like because you have to be so. It, it draws your eye to places that your eyes are not usually used to being drawn to on the screen. And because of that, it is so, so much more of like an active, you know, brain exercise than watching a normal sports movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, I think that that is why it's critically acclaimed. Like, I think that if I were a film critic, I would be counting that in the positive tally. But in terms of like a wider audience, I think that that probably negates some of it, some of its rewatchability, honestly. Yeah, I wrote on the the iPhone filming, I wrote down, I thought it was refreshing. I thought it was cool. Like, it's very interesting format. I, I'm glad not every movie is filmed like this. Yeah, that, I, it, would, it would give me a headache. I think yeah. we can leave it. I want to move into the recent category, the strikeout, for the, the, the worst or most head-scratching moment of this movie. Um, I, I will start because I just have a lot of questions about Eric Scott as a player, as a person, he is the most low key number one overall pick of all time. They mentioned that he is the number one pick. I don't yep. know if he is for sure the number one overall pick, uh, because that would imply that the the Knicks won the lottery. Which, uh, but throughout the film, so well, he is the it would never actually imply that the Knicks won the lottery. It would just reply that NY won the NY, lottery because New they York didn't want to did. pay for the. <laughs> And to be able to use the name the Knicks in the film. Right. Well, so, well, the NBA is never named itself, right? I mean, I, I wonder why the, the league NBA wouldn't want the their league. name on this. But, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, Eric Scott has no friends at all. <laughs> not one. There's not even the hanger-on guy. He doesn't have his own Maverick Carter. His, yeah. His mom isn't around. Like, he is just alone in, like, a like – a, you know, an expensive New York apartment, but like not what you'd expect from the number one overall pick. They're talking about him running out of money. He's taken out a bad loan. If he, like endorsements, like not a single one, no one wanted to get behind this guy. I just, I have, I have a ton of, a ton of questions. And like when they have the, the backcourt day or whatever, and uh-huh. the other first round pick shows up and all the kids run over to him. Like, is he just like the <laughs> least cool number one overall pick ever? Like, I just, I don't understand. Yeah, I know. And the other, the other aspect of it is that the film wants you to believe that he's the most desirable athlete in the game right now, based on how they're going to disrupt because so many people have intrigue around him and the other, the other draft pick who's, whose name I, I can't, recall right now he has a um, jamero jamero yeah yeah and umber and umber and so i i think that that is a little bit um you know a, a backwards and also he's supposedly from new york so you would think that he would be a fucking legend to all of those kids um but yeah i mean i think that that is i, I think that that is part of the the rub that that makes this not really a sports movie is that it gets those those details wrong while getting some other details and some of the more thought-provoking elements of it are so right. Honestly, though, a really head-scratching thing for me when I was watching this was 
now that Alex and I have spent the last three years doing nothing but talking about the MLB Players Association and collective bargaining agreements and the owners and minor league unionization and all of this stuff. And we're so much more well-versed in it than, than I was in 2019 when I first saw this film. I don't know. I don't totally understand the head of the, the NB, NBPA, the it's not actually named the NBPA, but the head of the union's stance in all of this, where she's like, you guys can't play each other. Two, two athletes that play on a, on a team together, that could be construed as a league event. I'm like, no, no, it couldn't. No, NBA players do this all the time. All I see on social media all offseason is NBA players playing against each other. And just because there's a lockout, it's not like the team itself organized it. So there's nothing illegal about two players meeting in a gym, even if it was organized by an agent. An agent is not hired by the league. So that part was really confusing and head-scratching and honestly took me out for like the middle 20 minutes of the movie. It landed the plane eventually, and that that didn't really hang up the entire plot of the movie, but I was sort of confused by that, and I kind of didn't really understand the head of the union's character and her motivations quite as much. I didn't know what they were trying to say with that. Yeah, that one kind of threw me for a loop as well. I mean, all the all of the mechanics of how this sort of off-court, you know, backroom league was going to work kind of confused me a little bit, especially because the owners were scared out of their minds by this, right? They catch wind that this might happen, and all of a sudden they're drawn right back. The Yellow to King the table. from True Detective. You had that guy scared. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And one would have to think that they have more kind of weapons at their disposal rather than just kind of being forced into a corner by a rogue agent uh like this that there is some clause in some contract that maybe means that the league might have a little more dominion over this sort of thing than they they really let on right it kind of seems like the wild blood west if there, as long as right. there's a lockout like the players can go and and do what they want so it was almost i was almost on the other side of you bobby where i was kind of like how does ray think that this is really going to to work there's so many interests at play that there's no way he just pulls a little one-on-one off and makes millions off of it for his players. Like, the okay. league is not going to let that happen. But why, though? That, that was the interesting question to me, though. Like, is this an alternate timeline? There's nothing that says that NBA players can't play each other in one-on-one for money, right. for streaming money or whatever. Actually, there's a, there's a clause that's, like, nicknamed the for love of the game clause that Michael Jordan fought, fought for in his contract that is now part of the NBA CBA, which is that players are allowed to play whatever they, wherever they want in the offseason. Their contract can't be voided if they get injured while doing that stuff. So I was thinking in my head, I was like, maybe I just know too much. Like maybe he does. He's kind of like hand waving some of those details to be able to like land the harder hitting questions a little bit harder. But I, I was sort of confused by that aspect of it. And that's where it gets into what you were talking about with like this movie was a tight 90 if we had 10 more minutes to kind of understand the machinations, the backroom deals that are going on and why maybe these streaming rights conflict with what they've agreed to in under the premises of this lockout, then maybe I would have understood it a, a little bit more. I had a question for you guys. Um, who is Kyle McLaughlin in this movie? His, his character's name is David Seton. Is he... The commissioner is he an, a very influential, I took and powerful him as an owner. owner? It was sort of implying. 
I took him as an owner as well. Yeah. So but then why like, was he individually kind of leader of it? Okay. Okay. So he's sort of like a Reinsdorf <laughs> character then. Right. That's but how I why took him. But initially the, the leading... first 20 minutes, I thought he was the commissioner because his name is like David. Right? right. And like, and so I was kind of like, oh, okay, guy, like nicely done. But it does kind of back off that a little bit as you get to know him a little bit more. Because then he's on the PJ and he has his girlfriend with the dog there. And so you're trying to, you know, portray wealth and how these owners are so out of touch while these while these athletes are struggling because they haven't gotten their paychecks yet and et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of got that. But why is he leading the negotiations was a question that I had. And too. doing one on this one on one negotiation with the the head of the players union like the. I don't think lockouts get ended right. in just one single office between two people. Right. Not from yeah. my understanding. Although we're still trying to get Rob Manford on tipping pitches to kind of to ask that <laughs> Man, question. He fucking hates Put a bow this on that. He was absolutely in that, that audience. And he gave this like a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> wow. Do we think that maybe it got such a poor score because Rob Manfred or, you know, David Stern before he died or... Adam Silver organized yeah. like bot farms Rob to Manfred's, downvote this. Rob Manfred's bot farm harming uh harming high flying bird. Rob Manfred loves he That's loves my the Twitch name. Um I just I needed more details on like the lockout itself. There's it, if just we're talking about like what didn't work entirely, it seems like there is not the biggest sense of urgency. And like we we've seen that from one side or another in lockouts previously, where like people are making unserious offers and, and stuff, but it seemed they mentioned that it's it's the holidays or about to be the holidays. So we're we're like two months into the NBA season. And at at some point that I think there would be a little more incentive or a little more initiative from both sides. And it seems like if they're waiting on these TV contracts to be done. But if Ray doesn't try to finagle this side league, then it would have taken another another month, which seems a little just a little. It seems like everyone's just a little unserious about the situation at hand. Also, I don't mean to nitpick, but what TV contracts are being done if there's no league? Like, what are they negotiating <laughs> right. if there are no games? Was another point of contention that I had. I mean, I don't like. I don't want to. I don't want to nitpick because I understand that the large, large majority of people viewing this film don't give a shit about any. They don't care about the furlough over the game clause. They don't care about union security they don't care about scabs they i mean don't but care we about do and this players, is our podcast they don't. so we can we can nitpick by all means right exactly <laughs> right and i think that this movie is intellectual enough that it should be able to wear both of those hats it should be able to be literate for the people who can read it that way and it should also be literate for the people who don't care about that stuff and i don't think it quite cuts both ways um in certain moments Alex, how did you feel about the the cut-ins from like Carl Anthony Towns and Donovan Mitchell and I, I think one other player? Yeah, Reggie Reggie Jackson, Reggie, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Reggie Jackson. Yeah. I thought they were really interesting, right? Because it kind of breaks up the pacing of the film a little bit. You're getting that personal touch. I didn't think that they were particularly revelatory, right? It's a lot of kind of the same sorts of things you hear from a lot of young players coming out of the league that's like you got to look out for your own, you know, you kind of come in, you come into a certain amount of money, you know, when you're a rookie first, second year in the league, all of a sudden you have all this attention, you have this fame, you got to really kind of keep it on lockdown. You got to know who your people are, right? Because they're going to be people trying to, trying to take what they can from you every step of the way. So I, and none of that was particularly new, 
but seeing it kind of spliced into the film, I do think kind of gave it an interesting sort of perspective and puts like a very real face to the characters of uh, like, like Eric, for example, right? Knowing that like, this is the kind of thing that guys go through every year, whether it's on this grand or dramatic of a scale, but like there are players who are having these conversations, right? Who are like, my first paycheck doesn't come for like two months. Like what, can you help me out? You know? And so I kind of sympathize with Eric's position a little bit where he's like, you know, making, taking out bad loans, right. Or asking his agent to, to help him out. Right. And, and sitting at home in his dark apartment. Cause he has no friends, not a single person <laughs> he wants to hang out with him. Right. Like the true tragedy of the movie is that Andre Holland's character doesn't give him doesn't let him open the book right away. He could have used a book. He had nothing better to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I needed the the last thing that really didn't work for me. Besides, uh, this is just a thing. Like Andre Holland, he's having the conversation with Spence at the court while he's shooting around. He misses a free throw and then a five footer back to back. And like I, I personally would have just been like, hey, sorry, I'm gonna shoot these again. Like we're we're just gonna get some <laughs> right. footage. Like, but um. I wasn't entirely sure what was going on with Sam, his assistant. Like she's, she's not his assistant anymore. She doesn't work for him. She's getting moved somewhere else, but she's just hanging around. Now she's, now she's sleeping with Eric, but now she's going to go work for the players union. And I was just kind of, and like, is also weirdly in line to run the players union in yeah, a year, right. even though she yeah. just started working there. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Uh, that the, the character of Sam was, I didn't, I didn't love, like, I just, I just like didn't love the direction. It wasn't like, like she had some strong moments, but then it's also like she's, she's sleeping with the firm's client and stuff. And, and when stuff like that happens, especially now I get not uncomfortable, but it's like, there's, it, it's like the, we talked, I talked about this. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on um, my episode last week with, uh, with Jeff Perlman talking about the stereotype of like the female journalist who sleeps with the person she's covering. Mm-hmm. And that was, I don't know. It kind of gave me those same vibes and I was, I was just, I was very interested in like, what is her career path? Like, what is she really doing here? Like she's just hanging around Ray's house, which is just an odd, odd move. Yeah. It's part of that thing that Alex brought up where you feel like there's so much going on. That's not portrayed on screen. And I felt like her character was one of the ones that had the most off screen stuff that you kind of had to like fill in with your mind. She's an assistant agent. So she's not like his office assistant. But that's not really clear until the very end when he's talking with Zachary Quinto's character, who Zachary Quinto being in this movie is also. I know. It's just like, (laughs) sure. There's Zachary Quinto (laughs) in the corner office. Yeah. So Zachary Quinto's character is, you know, I think standing in for like the he's done it the right way kind of agent. And it's, I think it's not a coincidence that he's like the the white buttoned up agent and Andre Holland's character is thought of as to be much more going his own way and doing things his own and carving his own path. And so when they're having that conversation at the end and they're talking about Zessie Beats's character, Sam being an assistant agent, I kind of like that dawned on me that I should have realized that a lot earlier that she was actually also an agent and like representing clients and stuff, but just not like a, a, a senior agent there, I guess. So I don't, I don't, I I could go either way on her character, honestly. Like, I, I like the performance a lot. I'm in the bag for Zazie Beats. I like her as an actor a ton. 
and I so good. I yeah. thought that she had she effectively accomplished the difference in generation between those two characters that I think putting them in the room and having conversations with so often was trying to accomplish in the screenplay. But then there are also sort of just like little tangents that she goes on, like sleeping with Eric that I don't really understand how that plays into the, like trying to get these athletes what they deserve and what they've earned theme of the movie. She also uh, like has a bit of an about face, right? You referenced her potentially going on to join and maybe lead the players union near the end of the movie. But she has this moment kind of in the, in like the middle third of the movie, this interaction um, with Myra, the head of the players union, right. Who uh, played by the incredible Sonia Sohn, right. Uh, Honestly. Yeah. But uh, Myra says to Sam is like, um, is like, you know, come, you should come work for us. Like we could use and, uh, and Sam cuts her off and is like, Oh, like, I don't like to be used and walked away. And I was like, <laughs> wow, amazing. Like, so good. So good right there. Like, get her ass. And then by the end of the movie, she's like, yeah, I can. I think I'm going to go and try and work my way up there. I was like, oh, uh, I, I <laughs> had so much faith in you. Come on. <laughs> Here's what also didn't work. This is not how a union works. It's just not what a union does. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not what a union does. Maybe that's what the NBA Players Association does, because I'm not intimately familiar with that union. I'm, I don't even consider myself intimately familiar with the MLBPA, though I know a lot more about it than I do about the National Basketball Players Association. Um, this is not what a union head would act like. She would not be this confrontational with players or agents for reasons unbeknownst to me, like they're violating the lockout or something like that. Like that's not it's not how it would be. It's just it's just not, and that bothered me. Like that's not how it would work. There's also an. It- I mean, it seems besides the interview cut-ins, they didn't get NBA participation. They didn't get player participation. I mean, again, a three-week, you know, three-week shoot, small $2 million budget. But, like, had this been going on, like, if if word got out that Ray was trying to start this league, LeBron James is calling him and saying, <laughs> you, yeah. you didn't ask daddy. And, <laughs> like, there's, there's, there's that whole – I mean, that's one of the things that if this was a – a, a little bigger movie that's one of the aspects that they they would have probably been able to snake in like that's the thing that where hustle which was obviously like an adam sandler movie with everyone in the world but bringing in the world of the nba and all these figures just to ground it grounded in reality like that that stuff helps just like the the face value of you know if you had had like i guess kind of stepping on roster moves or recasting or whatever towards the end of the show like if you had had some more familiar faces, like if you had had a cameo of a fucking coach or a couple players or something like that, like if if Eric would have been at backcourt day, but also a couple New York NBA players would have been there. Like, man, you couldn't get Marbury for that. Like, he's got to be around. <laughs> got to be around for that. You know, it's my man it, Kemba up to. It, it feels a little... I don't know if you guys have like ever played a video game that was like not licensed by yes. the Players Association. So like... So like the colors are there and the cities are there, but you know, it's like the, the Oakland maple leafs and they're green and yellow. And I'm like, I see what you're going for, but I don't appreciate having to fill in the blanks here. Shout out all pro football, 2k8, a great game, (laughs) a great game. Um, Let's take a quick ad break and then we'll get back with best scene. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, best scene for this one. Again, in the atypical sports movie fashion, this isn't like the first game, the second game, the confrontation between the star player and his girlfriend. It's like, which conversation did you like the most in this one? Mm-hmm. Which intense two-on-two? Like, the movie starts out with a really good one, with, the, you know, essentially the don't take loans conversation. It introduces us to the reality of the situation of what's going on, our two, or essentially our lead, our second lead, um... Andre Holland has just very commanding screen presence. Like it sets that conversation sets an important tone. And it also sets up, Hey, this is exactly what this movie is going to look like. It's two people in a room. They're talking. It's going to be quick, like quick witted that, that playwright thing where I, the thing I like about plays is everyone in a play is smarter than people in real life. Like everyone has just the sharpest, sharpest retort. Uh, Ray in this movie pulls so many like quick references from literature, just like right off the bat when he's talking to people is, is good. Is there like, Bobby, is there a conversation for this movie? Cause instead of like running through them, is there a single one that, that stands out above the others? Cause it, for me, it feels very like it's all kind of the same beat. Um, I think that there are four in my head that stand <laughs> out the most. Uh, the first one you already mentioned, which is the conversation between them at the beginning, because I think that um, I think that Terrell Alvin McCraney does a really good job of making you understand that Eric Scott's character is naive and he has a lot to learn and that Ray Burke is light years ahead of him, but that Eric's not like stupid, stupid, like he understands his place in this play so to speak he understands his place in the power dynamics of the league at least even if he can't verbalize them with the same quick wit that ray burke has so that was the first one um the second one is the conversation between ray burke and mrs umber when they're in her house his ass up and down the court of that conversation (laughs) but he was there to be dragged he wanted that he wanted to bait her into that conversation he wanted to make her seem like he was after her son because that would spur them to put themselves into this confrontation with Eric Scott. And that was, it was really funny. I thought when, when she said, do you think that I'm going to make you try to recite a Bible verse? And he just says, Jesus wept. And then they, they clanked <laughs> tea glasses was really tea cups was really funny. Um, 
The conversation it was a very like real, recognized, real moment. It's like <laughs> I see your game and you see mine. Like, Touche. It's cool. Yeah, it's it's like when a uh, um, a round of fencing finishes and they all kind of like shake hands <laughs> yeah. and bow. Like that's that's sort of what that felt like. Which is very playwright. Chris um, Jenner wishes she could be the kind of momager that Mama Umber is. <laughs> um, the other one was the conversation that they have as they're shooting hoops that you alluded to, Kyle, um, where Andre Holland's character is talking with Bill Duke's character, Spence, who is, you know, sort of like one of the OGs of this movie where he has this, like, this wisdom that can only be learned over time. He was there for the ABA. He understood what happened, that the NBA bought out the ABA and it was all about money and they took this joy. They took this league that was started as a renegade league for the love of the game, which is not really why the ABA was started, but we don't need to get into details of that. But... That conversation between them felt really earned because that mentor feeling between those two characters where, you know, for all of the the quick wit of the Ray Burke character, he can be immediately shut down by this guy who knew him when he was wearing diapers, more or less. And I love their relationship because at the end of it, it's all it's all friendship and it's all love. I love that they end every scene with each other by dapping each other up and Ray Burke runs off to his to his next meeting. And then the final one. And now I'm sort of like going on and on and on here. But no, the final conversation, means. the final conversation that I really loved was when Ray stands outside for world trade and he gets fired by Eric Scott. And Eric is like, you were supposed to be with the money. You were supposed to be working for me. You were supposed, you were supposed to have my interest at heart. You're my agent. You're supposed to take the Hippocratic oath. And Ray tells him that that's not what agents do. That's what doctors do, but it's more or less a similar situation. And Eric knows that he had been doing that for him the whole time, but he doesn't bother saying it because he knows that that's a lesson that Eric needs to learn on his own. And that's why they open the book at the end. And that's why says he beats his character is going to try to get him to read this book because he will then understand that. And it will be so much more of a valid lesson learned than if Ray just told it to him because he wouldn't be receptive to it. And so the humility of that character to stand there in the moment and just take that and then just dap him up, fist bump, we're good. Like, you'll appreciate this one day, I think is what wraps the whole movie in a nice, tidy bow and why the Ray Bear character is so phenomenal. Alex, is there a conversation that stands out for you? I mean, the the kind of, I guess, obvious conversation that stood out for me is, is again, the one between, um, between Spence and Burke in the gym. And I think it's the the first time we see him there and they're standing or they're sitting, um, in the in the bleachers, kind of on the sidelines, right? And this is kind of where things start to come into focus about the the movie's perspective on the game of basketball, right? And this is where Spence talks about the ways that the owner the owners created this game on top of the game, right? Which kind of feels like the line that sort of defines this this movie, um, and. Again, like it's like it's very easy to kind of boil it down into that into that one light. You know, there's like there's the there's the sport, and then there's the the kind of business on top of it that sucks all the kind of talent and the money out of the players that are that are feeding it. But you really you really get that sort of personal sense of the way that it actually has touched their their lives, right? There's 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 Ray Burke's kind of backstory about his his cousin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, um, his closeted cousin. Right, exactly. And 
I, I actually felt like they did that storyline a bit of a disservice. They kind of hand-waved it away as like a way to give Ray Burke a little bit of depth. Um, you also think they're going to dive in a little deeper on it. Right, and right, exactly. Really and it comes up like twice. Yeah. yeah. But it does it does kind of allude to this, this broader world of players for whom the game was just not accepting, right? Or was too willing to, to take from them and not willing to give back. And I thought Spence's, the dynamic between him recognizing the quote-unquote game on top of the game and also his aversion to whenever someone makes a reference to basketball and slavery, right? And he makes them kind of recite this line. Um, And I thought that dynamic was one of the more fascinating ones in the movie because he's, he's recognizing the business at play here and also unwilling to remove any of the agency from the players, right? He's like, this is absolutely like, these guys are the ones who run the game. And, and so that scene to me was really the one that just kind of, kind of stuck with me, but is like the one I'll be thinking about, Mm -hmm. you know, for a while. I'd agree. I want to, that one kind of not totally ties in, but I I just want to shine a little light on the, when it's essentially the kitchen table business plan, when Ray tells Eric, like, this is what I'm thinking. What would you pay to be at an event so exclusive that you can only catch glimmers of it on, on, on Snapchat and YouTube. YouTube. Facebook calls. And they said they would pay you and Umber for streaming rights to your one-on-one. How much? Don't matter. I told them no. Fuck you do that for? Because Netflix wants to sit down tomorrow. Only thing they don't have is live streaming, but we can lead their market. The money would go direct to YouTube. No players association. No league. It's 10% for you to in taxes, right? Eric, it ain't about the money, man. We're talking about money because that's what makes them listen and pay attention. But this makes you the decider, brother. The game that they made over the game is over. It's your game now if you want it. And it might not all line up perfectly. You get the Netflix drop in there, which I'm sure Netflix loved. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like if this was a little different movie and this was about like the renegade basketball league, like this is the scene that would come 20 to 25 minutes into the movie. And he's like, man, you'd like, but he, he basically says the message of the movie, like you are in charge. You have your own agency. Like you can make this decision and change and make something happen. And you know, we can, we can do this. Like you can take charge of your own career here instead of being dependent on this already existing structure. And that's a fun one that I'm, I'm not entirely sure works. And in a different movie, it might've been like the jettison for like, when we start, we see all these other, you know, things pop up. And it's more of just, you know, it, it all turns out to more just be kind of a ploy to push the owners into the middle table and just announce like, hey, we it's like um, it's like in Westworld, like the they like the bots achieving consciousness. Like, hey, we know we have agency now. Guess what? Like you you need to treat us as such and treat us with respect. And that's essentially what the conversation boils down to in the kitchen. But it's just another one. that I like I, I liked all the interactions between Eric and Ray I actually really enjoyed that that relationship mm-hmm. once i was able to get over i don't know if you guys saw american vandal season two uh, <laughs> i did not mm-hmm. yeah yeah just one of my just pure comedy but he is also eric the guy who plays uh guy who plays eric is also a um is also a basketball player in that and uh and it, it's it's great uh Mel- melvin Gregg. I was bumping on Melvin Gregg being in nine perfect strangers which was a, a very imperfect television show <laughs> but uh I just kept looking at him and seeing 
seeing his face from that from that TV show. Seeing Nicole Kidman's weird cult leader face from that TV show also. <laughs> I can't remember what, what Melvin Gregg's character's name is, American Vandal, but he is also a star basketball player, and he is just wildly dumb. And it's... <laughs> American Vandal as a show is, is, is phenomenal. Just a great take on true crime. Um, best, yeah. best quote in this movie. Uh, mine is, is, is really from that conversation that both of you guys were talking about with Spence. It's just the Spence saying, uh, they wanted control of a game. We play better. They invented a game on top of a game. That's like the quote that just sums up this movie easily. Like it, there's not for a movie. That's a play. There wasn't a ton. There was. There's not like the the hammer line that's just like, wow, this blows me out of the water. Yeah, I mean that was definitely one that stood out to me again. Hence the 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 reference to it. But it almost felt easy. Like that was the one that kind of rose above the rest, where they kind of lay it all out for you. Um, and and like you said, there weren't a lot of other moments exactly that really kind of pull at your heartstrings necessarily. Although. Later on in the movie, um, I I think Ray is talking to Sam and talking about kind of Eric's sort of reticence to this whole scheme that he's concocted, right? And Ray says in a sort of resigned manner, he ain't a game changer. He's just happy to be playing the game. And that really kind of struck a chord with me, especially as you know, as over on Tipping Pitches, we've been covering this sort of push to unionize the minor leagues for for years now, right? And that feels like a line that really hits home with, I think, a lot of players who are in more of a vulnerable position, right? Who don't necessarily want to overthrow the the guard, right? They just want to get out there and do what they what they love. And so I thought pulling out that dynamic was really was really interesting because it doesn't paint Eric as the bad guy. It paints him as as the kid who's doing what he's always wanted to do, right? And never necessarily asked to to be the head of this fight. Definitely. Bobby, is there a quote that stands out to you in this one? You know, I was looking for one other well, the one that you brought up, Kyle, I think it's the the banner quote from this movie and that sums it up most directly. Um and I'm looking for I'm looking for other quotes. It's not like a easy to find a list of quotes from this movie. No, it's not. No. But <laughs> Uh, the one that I that is cited in the 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 review of this on on RogerEbert.com is the exchange between Zachary Quinto's character and Andre Holland's character, like early in the movie when they're talking about the lockout, and Ray Burke insinuates that he thinks that the players are going to come out on top of this, and Zachary Quinto's character says, "So you're on the players' side." And he says, "I rep players." what other side is there basically or I rep players who else's side and you know that's not like the most quotable line necessarily but I think that it it very quickly summarizes what his like driving motivation is he's like I'm here for the players I recognize all of these other external power factors and I have no machinations on them I'm not interested in trying to become the head of the the players association i'm not interested in trying to become the commissioner i'm not interested in trying to become an owner or a billionaire or the head of this sports agency you know you're in my seat he says to zachary quinto's character at the end of the movie that's probably another one that could be honestly best quote of the movie but i think those two lines are the other two outside of spence who i thought um not to not to get ahead of myself here but i thought it was quite a phenomenal supporting character yeah. Yeah. Let's um I mean, 
the the character I had or the the category I have in front of the Lenny Harris pinch hitter award is most athletic moment, which Ray <laughs> does a ton of walking in this movie. Like <laughs> he does a ton of walking and keeps his suit still looking very nice. So I mm-hmm. that's that's an achievement in itself. That's difficult. Yeah, I think we almost saw Eric shoot a basketball almost on the court. Almost. I think we mostly saw the kids. He dribbles who are through his legs out. a few times. That that <laughs> might does. be that might be it. Without yeah. without getting you know real down and crouching, it looks pretty effortless. So that he's that wearing like jeans movie. and a jacket. I'm like, dude, this <laughs> cannot be comfortable. You did not come to play today. No, you get yeah. The both of them playing one on one in in jeans. Uh, the uh, we we do get to see the Umber dude take a jump shot. He does a little through his legs step back. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go out on a limb here. Uh, it's we see it through our screen, shot on an iPhone eight, through a TV screen, on Fox Sports One with Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless arguing about it, and he still looks really bad. He still doesn't look like he's, <laughs> uh, you know, even Division Two college. So I don't know how he's fighting for the New York Knicks starting point guard position. Yeah, we also we didn't talk about in, in what did we just that whole situation that it's like what's the deal with both of these guys on the same team, but being rivals, they're both going to be fighting for the the same position. What was the deal? The wolves drafted was it Johnny Flynn and Ricky Rubio the same year. Yes. Johnny Flynn. Thing. Uh, Ricky Rubio. There's, there's one more too. Hold on. Let me, look. I'll yeah, look they, it up. They drafted them in front of Steph Curry, but I, I think Ricky Rubio was supposed to stay in Spain for a year. I, I don't know, but it, it this movie makes it appear as though the Knicks have taken two lottery picks at the same position, which I, I seems like something they could do. It just, it doesn't seem out of, out of the ordinary here. I mean, never put anything beyond the Knicks. Anything is, anything is possible in a negative way to quote <laughs> Kevin Garnett. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a weird situation. Like I, I feel like they could have, I mean, they really what they should have been is the number one and number two overall picks, right? And mm-hmm. one of them is playing for the in NY, and one of them is playing in in Brooklyn, and, yeah. And like, and that, and it's that sort of thing. Like, it's going to be a city rivalry thing. Um, okay, let's roll into the Lenny Harris Pinch Hitter Award for Best Supporting Character. Who's in the movie too much? Obviously, Ray is in the movie too much. I would say Eric, and I would say maybe Sam. Other than that, I think it's kind of wide open. Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Okay. So I'm going to go down uh, nominees. Uh, Bill Duke is Spence, who's great. He's a he's a great that guy for like the old wise and mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, he does that way back when in Get Rich or Die Trying, a movie that I have seen multiple times. Um, he teams up with Soderbergh again in No Sudden Move. I don't know if you guys checked out No Sudden Move, but I, I was a big fan. Um, Kyle McLaughlin, just perfect casting as the rich owner who doesn't care. Gerald <laughs> Prescott is Mara Umber. Uh, Glenn Flesher, who I mentioned earlier, uh, aka the Yellow King from True Detective, who is only credited as intimidating set and colleague. That is his. That is his his role in this one. And he's just Tag fucking yourself. Great. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> he's great. At everything. Um, another one another of, one where I'm like, who who is he? Is yep. he mm-hmm. is he the commissioner? Is he the legal counsel for the ownership side? I have no <laughs> idea what's going on there. Is he Donald Sterling? Like he there a lot of lot of questions. A lot of questions. 
Uh, one of the kids is Lucas from Stranger Things, Caleb McLaughlin. Yep. Uh, yeah. Shout out, shout out, Stranger Things. Uh, Sandra Stone, who who uh, who Alex mentioned, and then Z- Zachary Quinto. It just felt weird not to list him. His character is a real big like. I run or work at a sports agency, but I don't often watch sports. Kind of kind of guy. <laughs> but uh, Alex, who's the who's the pinch hitter in this one? For me, and and I loved Bill Duke's character again because he delivers some of the most impactful moments in the whole movie um but for me it was gerald prescott who's who commands a sort of presence that is so much bigger than just her character itself which is largely limited to that one scene that we that we talk about where ray goes over to her house and then they have kind of a brief banter um on backcourt day right but I feel like she perfectly kind of represented the sort of overprotective parental figure who also recognizes the recognizes the sport for the business as it is, right? And wants to protect her her kids and will happily go toe to toe with any agent or uh, or coach or GM or who whoever it is to protect her kids' interests, right? He, she felt like the closest kind of analog to a sort of LeVar Ball sort of character, maybe without, mm-hmm. without like, like 20% less LeVar Ball, you Man, know? That's like, who like, this movie needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? No, I think this movie had it. And I think Daryl Prescott <laughs> is definitely LeVar Ball. That's It was giving a lot of LeVar Ball and having just watched mm-hmm. King Richard not that long ago is giving Richard Williams too. I think she was rolling that all into one performance. And the fact that her other son was in the NFL and she adeptly broke down while they were in the church and she was in the church with the journalist and she was talking about the differences between those leagues in the NFL. It's like, ah, oh, you're behind a, you're behind a helmet and you can't make as much of an impact, but Jamero is going to, he's going to change the game. He's going to change the world. And, this lockout is nothing in comparison to what this new wave of athletes is is going to bring along. I'm, you know, I, I bumped on that a little bit because, like, I thought that this movie could have had better, like, union owner politics in it. It could have more clearly come on the side of the owners or come on the side of the union without giving away some of the more complicated discussions and questions that it had about the power of players to determine their own fate. Like, I don't think the union is standing in the way of them in the way that the, the movie might sort of imply that it's, that it's on the fence. Well, what, what I will say is I think to, to the same mother, to the family of a first ish overall, <laughs> overall pick, however we're defining Jamero lottery. You pick. might, right. Yeah. You might well see the union is as much of an, not enemy, but a sort of adversary as the league itself, right? If you're kind of in the in the state of mind of like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to get mine for my kid or for myself or whatever, you might, because like, I mean, we've we've talked about before kind of the ways in which the the top kind of one percent, so to speak, of the league is in a vastly different position than the majority of of role players, whether it's in basketball or or baseball or whatever. So I did kind of empathize with her position of yeah. like, my kid is the one, right? And no one's going to stand in his way. And no, no sport is that more true than basketball, where the union, um, we'll just say that it hasn't necessarily looked out for the little guys the way that it's looked out for the uh, 
super max <laughs> extension guys who were also uh, conveniently running the Players Association when that super max <laughs> extension came into existence. I'll say. I'll leave it at that. Uh, I think that the supporting character that that wins this award is is Bill Duke for Spence. And I think he wins it running away. He has the most laugh lines. He has the most like learned wisdom that he's passing along to the audience, but also the characters within this movie you know like if if andre holland is like the straw that stirs the drink in this movie i think that you know spence is like the ice keeping it cold basically like he's he's essential so that the rest of the movie does not like lose its its punch and uh i thought that he had a really her really good performance in that respect and also just seeing him (laughs) like with his with his I'm over it basketball coach attire, you know, like his loose warm-up sweats and his new yeah. balances that are like not stylish at all. And he's wearing his hat. I thought very well rendered character. Very well rendered. Yeah. I'm just a big fan of when coaches tell players to take laps. Just take la- <laughs> this is my court. Take laps. The, the character's so important because Ray needs a soundboard who is he's not like a mentor, like a or like a peer level or more raise or uh, Spence is more of a mentor, but like, he needs kind of a soundboard and someone to have those conversations with. The conversations with with Myra are they're not confrontational, but they're a little more like boxing matchy. They're mm-hmm. they're tr- they're still trying to figure the other out and what's going on. Um, Sam is again is is a peer, but it's it's not the same thing. Ray is really Spence is the only person who he is legitimately talking to not even for advice, just for like counsel and on, on his ideas. Like if I, I guess to kind of tie in the, the glue guy category, which I'm still newer category, still trying to figure out in the show. Like it's obviously Ray, the glue guy of this movie who doesn't work, but Spence grounds it like for Ray. And I, I think that character is really important that Gerald Prescott, like she's great. Like she is just dynamic. Like she, she eats, she scores like, 30 points in 10 minutes. So it's an unreal performance, but Spence for being the glue guy and being the sounding board for Ray, I think is the most important supporting character. So I think he would mm-hmm. be, he would be my pick too. I agree. Um, best time, worst time, which is another newer category. It's something that spun off when we were doing a pod on speed and trying to figure out who had the best time during the course of that movie and the worst time during the course of that movie. A lot of candidates for both. Um, th- this is this who Bobby who had the bet which character over the course of this movie this movie takes place over what like three days which character had the, the best time man the dog in the private jet <laughs> the dog's having a great time dogs living dogs living a great life skip I Bayless mean, I don't know um, I think Gerald Prescott had the best time best uh, Mara she, is, she is loving she she's cooking the, these dudes the like she, she's like church cooking the uh, cooking the agents like those weren't the only tongue lashings that she gave out those are just the only ones we saw she's right. she's uh, she's throwing 100 at all times yeah she's playing a different game than everybody else um i i weirdly i weirdly feel like ray burke had a great time you I know he had he had highs too. and lows but also like this is his this is his game on top of a game on top of a game and he's the only one that knows the rules. And he's also the only one that knows that he's playing. So I think that he's probably having the best time within it. Alex, is there anyone who had a worse time than Eric Scott? I feel like Eric <laughs> Scott had a really bad three days. He was down 
bad. When we Honestly, need him, so many he's ways. taken out a shitty loan. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't think there is one. Honestly, I mean, he he comes around at the end. I'm happy for him. He like, you know, he he finds what he's looking for, I guess, which is a, a book and an NBA contract. Like, like, I don't know. Um, I, I, I weirdly feel like most of the characters in this movie are actually having a, a good time. Like this is right in their wheelhouse. Like David, I mean, Kyle McLaughlin's character. I felt like he was having the time of his life, right? And you can tell because, like, he he doesn't really have anything at stake here. I mean, sure, he does. He has millions at stake. But, like, what is that to millions an NBA are, owner? Millions are nothing to him. Right, What exactly. is this weird, so, okay, not to derail this segment, but what is this weird, like, red light sauna that they're in? Just completely unexplained why they would be mm-hmm. in the same sauna. Yeah, I don't see Ray having access to the same places that uh, that David Satin is in. I think the implication there is that David Satin went out of his way to find where Ray would be to make him. I, I don't even know how bit. David Satin would find that though. Like he probably hasn't been in an establishment like that for years. Like he hasn't certainly hasn't like he's never see, been. See, when in you the say establishment like that, what do you mean? Because I don't understand where they are. Are they they're at a gym then? Are they at a club? <laughs> are they at a hotel? Just a weird red, weird lighting in there. You know, can we get a fucking fluorescent or something? I mean, you you guys are the New Yorkers here, like some weird trendy gym. I I don't know. I know they're in they're in bathhouse in Williamsburg, Bobby. Like... <laughs> actually, what I failed to mention is that that is actually where Alex and I record most of our podcasts from. <laughs> from the, <laughs> from the a red sauna. Light sauna. <laughs> yep, we're wearing towels. We're sweating. By the it's end of the pod, sure we don't even know what hot. we're saying. Yeah, exactly. It is a testament to like how well Soderbergh, like how good he is at making a massive world feel small, right? All these characters have no business like kind of running into each other or saying, Oh, how come you're in, you're in Myra's office when I'm in here, whatever, you know, like, like they really, (laughs) Myra's office is just a fucking free for all. (laughs) Literally was, it was just a hang. Eric should hang in there. Everybody has a key card to Myra's office. (laughs) But like, I think it's a testament to kind of his filmmaking that like you, I I mean, you can quibble with whether or not the characters were aware they should be, but I never kind of felt like I can't, I can't place this within the world necessarily. I'm like, okay, like, I guess they would, maybe they would frequent the same zonas. Like, I don't know. Once you clock out, is, is David your adversary anymore? Maybe, maybe not. That's the eternal question of labor, huh? Right. <laughs> Here's who was having a bad Which time. Which team are they really on? Oh, who was having a bad time? Myra. She Myra was getting was having... lapsed. Well, yeah, she her. was going through it. Yeah. Yeah. Like she was having a bad time in her personal life. Mm-hmm. She was having a bad time in the sense that she seemed to have no fucking idea what was going on with the <laughs> lockout that she was negotiating. She was mad when David Setton was having meetings without her. But she was mad when she was corresponded to on email, but she didn't see the email. You would think that she would have someone to alert her to these emails when they come through when you're negotiating with NBC. She's having a bad time. She's having a bad time. And that's that's part of the reason where I was like, it's not how a union works. Like, she would not be on the back foot. She would be, I think, a little more confident in her uh, negotiations and dealings with the league. Zachary Quinto's character was having a bad time, too. Yeah. Um, guy who doesn't like sports having to pretend that he's he's interested in what's going on in sports. He's having those difficult 
yeah, we're freezing your pay, we're canceling your cards <laughs> conversations. Like Ray's certainly not the only one who's who's bringing those questions. Like he's had an entire day of, yeah, sorry, no salary. Uh, sorry, we're letting you go. Sorry, we've frozen your expense account. Uh, that's that's taken a beating. Like it's it's been a rough. He he's certainly he absolutely cracks a bottle of something that night, and it bottle's done, without a doubt. I loved how depressing and cold their offices were like most of the whole color palette of the movie is, is very cold um, outside of the weird, the weird red light sauna, which is it's very warm and steamy. Um, but the rest of the movie is like very gray and it depicts New York as very cold and barren and kind of desolate. Like there's nobody else in the movie. And that's probably a function of the fact that they didn't have money to pay extras, but there's not a single other players union employee besides the head of the players union like there's nobody else there it's just these characters and that goes back to the the movie being written by a playwright as well but the quinto office and you're just looking down on like the east river and it just looks like if you dipped one toe in the east river you would just die of hypothermia <laughs> it's pretty amazing it's like a, it's it's great filmmaking by, by soderbergh right well he does he had as you said he has this high up corner office and you'd think he would be having the time of his life right like he's making so much money not doing very much right i don't want to diss sports sports agents here wow like wow you're gonna diss labor legend scott boris 80 (laughs) minutes into a pod that's not even our own come on is it is this what we think scott boris is like like no you know no just watching sports i feel like he's far he's far weirder oh no scott Scott Boris's office is definitely decked out with like photos of him and every player he's ever repped, like eating a pizza slice. Right. You know, it's like yeah, it's kind of like when you sauna, though. Like <laughs> it, might, it might just be the. Sauna. Well, I forgot to mention that we record and then we clear out so that Scott Boris can take meetings with Max Scherzer and all of these <laughs> these gentlemen. Oh shit! Okay, uh, roster moves. Kind of touched on this earlier, but like getting NBA players in the movie, like some some people at 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 back the court day or something like that. Other than that, I didn't really have anyone where I would be like, yeah, I would, I would recast you. I just this is something I just kind of thought of and might be a fun exercise. Might flop. If you could pick a character from any other Soderbergh movie and throw them in this movie, what what's the pick here? Ooh. You have to give me a sec to think about this. My my first thought was just was was Rusty was Brad Pitt from Ocean's Eleven, but just have him like in the background in the in the office with Ray, like he's another agent, and like he pops in for one scene, he's eating something, and he's just talking mm-hmm. about the lockout's bad, and uh, le- leaves to go on a date with uh, with the woman of the night. I think right. uh, you need you, you need the character who's kind of just cracking jokes the whole time, like doesn't really have a job in the movie other than to kind of play the the heel to Ray, like in the office space, so to speak. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we could bring Magic Mike in he's trying to diversify what kind of sports <laughs> he's representing. Ray Burke's character. No, I think Aaron Brockovich, the, the players union seems oh. like it could use some lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, what about Che Guevara? <laughs> let's go <laughs> raise the red flag eric scott come on dog <laughs> i pull i i pull i pulled up the uh the the imdb just to make sure we didn't didn't miss anybody uh 
So he he directed and he directed some episodes of King of the Hill. Hank mm-hmm. Hill's take on the the lockout would be something. Mm-hmm. What about Peter Gallagher's character from Sex Lies and Videotape? <laughs> Throw him in the sauna. <laughs> He's not leaving the sauna. Uh, he executive Lives produced there. Michael Clayton. Ray needed a Michael Clayton. He needed someone to fix this. Yeah, he needed a fixer. He, he kind of is Michael Clayton though. That's what I'm saying. He's the power broker. He's the one going around making the deals that people don't even know that they're making deals with him. Yeah, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but Daniel Craig's character, Logan Lucky, when Daniel Craig getting in that phase where he just loves nothing more than a than a southern accent, but I think he's the explosive expert. They they break out of prison. Here, um, here's a question for you, Kyle. In the same vein, you know, what if we mash this movie up like you do with songs? You know, like you mash up an emo song with a rap song or whatever. What if it's high flying bird taking place while contagion is happening then what (laughs) (laughs) it's a lockout pandemic (laughs) yeah locked out and locked in oh my god the the sauna's the sauna's a tough scene in that in that that throw on a mask come on ray Mm -hmm. wow if if you guys are interested in lockouts and pandemics boy have i got a baseball (laughs) podcast for you all that's exactly right Tipping pitches wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> staying, staying very, very on brand. Um, so, in in terms of a mashup, the last category before more story, there's obviously not a big chill in this movie. I, th- mm-hmm. I think we could just just skip that one. Before more store prequel, sequel, remake, more in the vein of like the idea of this kind of movie has has legs, for lack of a better term, like. Yeah. So much more like where where are we going with with this with this genre of of sports movie? Like it it's kind of interesting that I think the most interesting labor story has not been uh has not actually been like MLB in the minor leagues, although like I obviously personally as a fan very invested in that, but what's going on with with golf? Like I don't know how big you guys are into golf, but I'm a yeah. huge golf fan. And this and live and Saudi blood money, uh, that would make an incredible movie. We'll make an incredible documentary. We'll make an incredible Netflix series like Drive to Survive here coming out next year. But like where yeah. where are we going with sports movies and the the topics that like this that haven't been haven't been dove into yet? Yeah. Well, I just want to say whoever had Saudi blood money on their bingo card, you just hit. Congratulations. Yeah. That, that 83 minutes in bingo on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, in terms of before more restore, like to fit it into the confines of this category, I think that a remake of this in a different sport is, is incredibly intriguing. And um, it's cool to think about it in terms of golf, because that is already such an individualistic sport. Those guys have such individual relationships to their own earnings in terms of sponsorships in terms of what they do outside of the tournaments in terms of the even the pools of money that they win for performing in the tournaments as opposed to negotiating your own salary for joining a team um in that same regard i thought of how this would play out with like international soccer academies where you basically just like sign when you're nine and you are bought in to have a certain loyalty with that hometown club and then they loan you out to basically fund the next 150 kids that they want to bring into their international academy to develop three more players who are just as good as you. I think that this kind of storytelling is very ripe for for a setting like that. That I would love to watch this um, unfold in like you know Juventus's system 
and and see what this sort of lens could could bring to it. I mean, kind of in that same vein. I mean, I I, I don't know that if this is either a sequel or a remake or neither. It's probably neither. But I'd be interested to see what Ray's plan would actually look like if put into action. And that was one of the biggest things that kind of I I struggled with in the movie was I couldn't really tell if he actually wanted to revolutionize to change the game or if he saw this as kind of a convenient way for him to force the owner's hand, right? And obviously he has these sort of grander uh, ideas about the sport of basketball and the direction that it's headed in. And that's obviously uh, underscored in the conversations with Spence and in the book that he gives to Eric. Um, But I would be curious to see what it would be actually be, what it would actually look like to try and pull this thing off. Not necessarily because I'm interested in knowing about licensing deals or negotiating player appearances with the NBA, but like what a different vision of the sport actually looks like that brings it back to its roots, so to speak, right? That kind of, um, that, uh, that, that backcourt sort of mentality where we're, we're all friends here, but like for the next, you know, 45 minutes or whatever, like we're, you know, going to go as hard as we can. I thought that would have been really interesting and, and to kind of see the way that Soderbergh maybe envisions basketball coming of age in the 21st century, what it would look like, because it would be vastly different from, I think, the sort of infrastructure that we're familiar with right now. Yeah, like what they call the boxing model, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like, I, I had the idea pop in my head, like, how would I react if 50, the 50 best baseball players or like the all-star teams were like, we are going to do our own, like a pay-per-view series. Like we are going to do a, a true like world series. These guys have formed a team. These guys have formed a team. And we're like, yeah, if that, if that model has any legs anywhere, um, the other direction that I would be interested in seeing a sports movie go is the, the actual, and I, I mean, Kind kind of would line up with exactly what's happening with minor league baseball right now is the actual like building of a union and that process and and the strengthening of a union and how you hold your workforce together in that I mean like Bobby you have firsthand experience in that and that that it was kind so of cinematic when I was doing it I'm, I'm you know, sure it was, like I can't I, if you had only had like all Soderberg those Slack messages iPhone. like you cannot be just <laughs> Soderbergh standing over my shoulder while I slack a coworker. God, it's gonna be one of those movies where the messages are just coming across the screen. <laughs> You're reading half the time. Perfect. I mean, the the ideal prequel to something like that, not even a prequel to this, but the thing that happened before this that I would like to see is a movie on the creation of the uh, of the MLB Players Union or a different player. Yep. Like the because mm-hmm. now with like you you hit the forty man, you get your union card. Like MLB, you know, you're you're a member of the union. Like it's just it's such a given. And the I would love to see an in depth, and I you guys might be able to rec. Is there any documentary about this? I'm sure there are. Um, I think the 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 piece of uh, media that came to mind when I was watching this in its relationship to the Major League Baseball Players Association was when he gives them the book at the end, "The Revolt of the Black Athlete" by Harry Edwards. The the, the book that I thought of if we were going to write a baseball version of this is a well played, a well-paid slave, which is about Kurt Flood's fight for free agency and how 
that push for free agency was one of the first things that the union was formed to formally fight for. And um, I don't know, Alex, is is there a a documentary about the formation of the MLB Players Association? I mean, it it plays so... uh, it, it, It... it comes up in every other story about baseball. You know, it's like one of the most momentous things that's ever happened in sports, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. I can't think of one off the top of my head either. And I think it doesn't help exactly that, you know, we're, we're now 60 years removed from that. And, and at the time it's not like the league itself was particularly amenable to, the union itself forming. So I can't, I can't imagine that there would be much of a, I guess, paper trail or an opportunity to kind of um, dive into that, at least with the league's permission. But I do think there's ample room here to tell that story that is kind of at the forefront of like modern labor in sports. Let's write it. Sounds like, sounds like we got to make it would have made such a great, like Marvin Miller that just, just popped into Uh, my head. Yeah. God, Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman literally would have made a great anyone great. throughout <laughs> all of baseball history. <laughs> he would have anyone. made a great Buck Showalter in the oh, 2022 geez. Mets World Series movie that gets made by... Oh, are you back? It's 24 <laughs> you... hours ago. It was the Mets are never going to win again. Uh, that's enough Mets. That's enough Mets talk. Um, I would I would watch a Netflix series about this. Like, oh, for sure. If this mm-hmm. had... Honestly, I hate to even say that because... I truly think so many TV series should just be movies that are 90 minutes like this one. But this posed so many questions and didn't answer them that I honestly, I, I want more and I would watch it in, in television form because I think it could take more defined stances. It could build out some of those things that we were kind of wanting more of. And I think that it's a, it's a world that is interrogating things that, not everybody wants to be interrogated. And I think that we need more media like that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we talked about this when we, we kind of wrapped on Moneyball too, is that we are just on the fringes of what the next 10 to 20 years of sports movies will look like. And it's not going to look as much, except in the combat sports. Cause that, that formula is just like death taxes and underdog boxer who wins at the last second, um, or doesn't win. Uh, Besides that, like there is going to be if if sports movies get made because they're just getting made at a much like a much slimmer pace, it's going to be something different. It's going to be about the game within the game. It's going to be about the front office. It's something like that. So we're we will get more movies like this over the next yeah. ten years. It's just it's just what are they going to cover? What are they going to look like? Um, yeah. Well, in 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 one of the recent tipping pitches newsletters, um, plug alert. Uh, I wrote that I feel like baseball and and honestly basketball too is the front offices themselves the finance side of these corporations is such an interesting avenue and interesting setting that I feel like has not been explored very much like Moneyball was it was beloved but how do you divorce that from Brad Pitt giving a legendary performance as Billy Bean in sports movies but I feel like we have so many TV shows right now about like power struggles, whether that's like fantasy power struggles, like game of Thrones, trying to climb the ladder, whether that's like industry where we're trying to understand like the fucked up power dynamics of banking in London or whether it's succession, the familial power dynamic 
playing out in like this Fox News style media company. Like we have all of these modern stories that are power struggles. And what like what more perfect vehicle for power struggles than like a baseball front office or an NBA front office? And the fact that you can wend sports into that, I feel like widens the scope so much more. And we just haven't gotten it yet. And I don't know if that's because like the people who are interested in writing these phenomenal scripts are not interested in sports, but in the, in the case of high flying bird, they were. And so maybe let's, let's run this shit back guys. Steven, I know that you're after you've made your, your TV shows in the past, probably not that interested in working on that long of a window of a project, but I don't know. I, I would watch. I would yeah, definitely Baltimore watch more Orioles ownership group, but succession like, oh. come on. It's too easy. It's too easy. Uh, a a movie set over the course of like the forty eight hours around the the Brian Winhurst uh, <laughs> interview, but just like warring. And I don't know if like it were warring factions, but warring factions in Utah being like, do we tear this down or do we do we try to ride this out and like add another piece? And yeah. the movie's yeah. called Why Would They Do That? And boom. <laughs> <laughs> it, perfect but uh this was a fun one to chop it up on guys i as always very very appreciative you guys came on take the time tell the folks where can they check out tipping pitches where can they support tipping pitches we are anywhere you get your podcasts apple podcasts spotify google the whole nine yards uh you can follow us at uh tipping underscore pitches on twitter uh and we have the aforementioned patreon it's patreon.com slash tipping pitches. We got all the good stuff there. So uh so come by for a good hang about labor and baseball. It I promise it's a good hang, despite how we talk about it. It is hang. a good hang. It is a good hang. You can also uh find our merch store, uh tiny.cc backslash nationalize, where we sell our unionize the miners merch. And uh unionizing the minor leagues is actually happening. So you might want to go, you go get that. Hotter. Exactly. Never I want to go hotter. go get that merch. You know, check out an episode first. You don't need to sign up for the Patreon yet. You don't need to sign up for. You don't need to buy a shirt. You don't need to get the newsletter. Just just well, check out one shirt. episode. The shirts. See if you the like shirts it. are good shirts. There's a there's a twins themed one. There is. Who allegedly? By the way, allegedly, <laughs> we might have we, allegedly twins colors. <laughs> we might we might have to start recording every night until October because, folks, the twins did it. They beat the Yankees tonight. <laughs> Four Woo. to three, held on despite walking in a run in the eighth inning. Uh, they, they they did it. Uh, folks, if you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate and leave a review if you're on Apple Podcast or Spotify. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash big screen sports. Patrons have three polls up right now for the month of October. They're picking almost the entire October slate. Some great movies up for debate right now so go check that out if you're a baseball fan after you check out tipping pitches go check out from phenom to the farm that's presented by baseball america comes at you every other tuesday some great recent episodes uh red's great devin mezzarocco had ryan dempster on a few months Mets ago. legend devin mezzarocco that's legend who tells tells an incredible story about catching jacob de uh so yeah go check that out and as for big screen sports we'll catch you back next monday thanks for listening 
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.